This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Today is Thursday, December 10th, 2020. On this day in 1945, 32-year-old Frances Brown was murdered in her Chicago apartment. The killer left behind a message written in the victim's lipstick on her living room wall. It was a plea for police to catch them before they killed again. It was signed, The Lipstick Killer. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a Spotify original from Parcast. Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Today we're covering the murder of Frances Brown, one of three victims attributed to the so-called Lipstick Killer. Now let's go back to Chicago on December 11, 1945, around 8.30 a.m., when the body was discovered. Martha Engels began her day cleaning apartments at the Pinecrest Hotel in Chicago. But as she walked down the sixth-floor hallway, she noticed something strange. The front door of apartment 611 was ajar. Inside, Martha could hear a radio playing, yet nobody seemed to be home. That part wasn't unusual. The women who lived in 611 were usually on their way to work by this time. One was 38-year-old Viola Butler, a stenographer. The other was 32-year-old Frances Brown, an attractive and well-liked brunette. She worked as a clerk, but for three years during World War II, she'd served in the women's branch of the U.S. Naval Reserve. Martha stood at the door. After a moment, she stepped inside. The apartment was in complete disarray. Drawers were open, their contents strewn everywhere. On the living room wall, someone had scribbled a message in red lipstick. It read, For heaven's sake, catch me before I kill more. I cannot control myself. Panicked, Martha followed the bloodstains into one of the bedrooms, where she saw a red-soaked mattress and blood pooling on the floor. But the true horror was in the bathroom. There, bent over the edge of the tub, was the naked body of Frances Brown. The killer had wrapped her head in towels. Martha screamed, and soon tenants came running. Police were on the scene within minutes. When they unwrapped the towels, police saw that Frances had been stabbed in the neck twice. The weapon, an eight-inch stainless steel bread knife, was still lodged in her throat and pushed in so far that the tip came out the other side. But despite the severity of the stab wound, it wasn't the cause of death. 
The coroner later found that Frances had been shot in the right side of her head and again in her right arm. Police theorized she likely surprised the killer coming into her apartment, leading them to shoot first, then stab her with her own knife. One report says that they found bloody smudges on the windowsill, and police guessed the killer entered the apartment through the fire escape. However, another report alleged that the apartment had been carefully cleaned of fingerprints, with not much evidence besides the writing in lipstick. A neighbor remembered hearing gunshots around 2.30 that morning, but another neighbor claimed to hear the shots closer to 4 a.m. That was also when the night manager saw a stocky, dark-haired man come off the elevator and exit the building nervously. The crime scene was puzzling. The apartment had been ransacked, but the killer hadn't taken any valuables. Only the victim's purse was emptied. Her body was found nude, but not sexually assaulted. And then there was the message written on the wall. It implied that this person had killed before. Some of the cops believed it was also proof that the killer was a woman. The phrase, for heaven's sake, struck them as something a woman would say. But most importantly, the murder scene felt familiar. Six months earlier, a 43-year-old woman named Josephine Ross had been found nude and stabbed in the neck with a skirt wrapped around her head. The crime hadn't even been front-page news at the time. But now, it seemed that the same individual could be responsible for both attacks. The newspapers dubbed the murderer the Lipstick Killer, and soon, they would strike again. Coming up, we'll look at the investigation into the Lipstick Killer. Hi, it's Greg. I want to tell you about a fantastic podcast show I know you'll love that dives deep into some of history's most notorious leaders. It's called Dictators, and every Tuesday, it examines the reign of a real-life tyrant, exploring the unique conditions that allowed them to seize control. Dictators have a never-ending thirst for power. Some seize this power through force, others through deceit, and all of them won't hesitate to eliminate anybody who stands in their way. You can hear episodes on dictators from the Roman Empire like Caligula, World War II dictators like Benito Mussolini, female dictators like Isabella of France, and many more. There are over 40 episodes available to binge right now that I know you'll find fascinating. Discover the governments that fell, the lives that were destroyed, and evil at its highest level. Follow Dictators Free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. Late at night on December 10th, 1945, or early in the morning on December 11th, 32-year-old Frances Brown was shot and stabbed in her apartment in Chicago. 
Besides a few bloody smudges on the windowsill, the killer left no physical evidence. But they did scrawl a message in the victim's lipstick. It was a plea for the cops to catch them before they killed again, stating, I cannot control myself. Newspapers called the murderer the lipstick killer. It seemed the same person was likely responsible for another killing six months earlier, but the lipstick killer's next crime was so disturbing, it overshadowed the first two kills. On the morning of January 7, 1946, James Degnan walked into the bedroom of his six-year-old daughter, Suzanne, and realized she was gone. By 10 a.m., police had found a ransom note in the child's bedroom demanding $20,000 for her safe release. A ladder was also found outside her window. It looked like a kidnapping, but before the day was over, the Degnan's worst fears were realized. At 7 p.m., Suzanne's severed head was found in a sewer basin just a block away from the Degnan house. A few hours later, police found her legs and torso also in nearby sewers. Police believed that Suzanne had been taken from her bedroom, strangled, and brought to the basement of a nearby building where she was dismembered. The crime was horrifying. Police questioned thousands of people and made several arrests, but none of them turned out to be the killer. Five exhaustive months went by before police got a break in the case. In the late afternoon of June 26, 1946, a 17-year-old University of Chicago student named William Hirons was getting ready for a date. He was short on cash, so he decided to steal from an apartment building in the Degnan's upscale neighborhood. By this time, Hirons had been stealing for years. He'd already been arrested numerous times during his teens for burglary and had done at least a couple of stints in correctional school. A tenant saw Hirons attempting to steal and called the police. When they cornered him, they found he was armed. A scuffle ensued and Hirons was finally knocked out by some blows to the head. Unconscious, he was taken to the hospital at Cook County Jail, where police took his fingerprints. Three days later, police claimed they matched the prints to ones found on Suzanne's ransom note. They wasted no time searching his dorm room. Reportedly, they found a medical kit and surgical knives, further incriminating him in the murder. The police alerted the media that they'd found their serial killer. But there was one problem. Hirons wouldn't confess. So police decided to torture him. Their methods were extreme. First, a nurse poured ether on his genitals while he was tied to a bed. Then a detective punched him in the stomach over and over while repeating details of the Degnan crime. Then he was given a spinal tap without anesthesia and made to take a lie detector test, though he was in too much pain to be responsive. He was never given access to an attorney. According to one story about those five days of torture, when William was under the influence of a sodium pentothal shot, he finally broke. He mentioned a man named George who may have committed the crimes. 
some of the detectives believed George was William's alter ego. George was also Hirons's middle name, which was proof enough for the police. On July 12, 1946, Hirons was charged with three counts of murder. But the state had trouble proving Hirons' guilt. His fingerprints weren't a complete match to the ones found on the ransom note, and some believe the prints were planted. And according to later analysts, his handwriting didn't match the message scribbled on Francis's wall. So to make things easier, the state's attorney offered Hirons a deal. If he gave a full confession on the stand, he would avoid the death penalty. He would be able to serve three life sentences concurrently with a chance for parole in 20 years. Hirons agreed, but when the day came to confess on the stand, he couldn't bring himself to do it. The state's attorney was livid. As a result, he changed the terms of the deal. Now Hirons would serve three consecutive life sentences, one after another. He would likely never get out of prison, but he wouldn't be put to death. To save his own life, Hirons pled guilty, and on August 7, 1946, officially confessed to killing Josephine Ross, Francis Brown, and Suzanne Degnan. A month later, he was taken to a maximum security prison to begin his sentence. As soon as he got there, he began telling people he was innocent. In 1949, at the age of 21, he started petitioning for a hearing to re-examine his conviction. Three years later, the hearing took place, with 40 witnesses coming forward over a 10-day period. But in the end, a judge denied his petition. Hirons never stopped trying to get his conviction overturned or his sentences reduced, but he was unsuccessful. He died on March 5th, 2012, at the age of 83. At the time of his death, he'd been imprisoned for 65 years, which is still one of the longest sentences ever held in the United States. Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. For more stories like this, check out Serial Killers on Spotify. Today in True Crime is a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other Parcast originals for free on Spotify. We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. Today in True Crime is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Joanna Philbin, with writing assistance by Aaron Lan, and fact-checking by Claire Cronin. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Don't forget to check out The Dictator's Podcast. Every Tuesday, they go deep into the minds of some of history's most despised despots. You'll get insight into their rise to power and the impact of their downfall. Search for Dictators in the Spotify app and listen free today.